our promise for today, Psalm 55, verse 17. It says, Evening and morning and noon will I pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. That's a precious promise, isn't it? But uh, this idea of uh, praying three times a day, I think in another place David said he would, uh, like seven times a day would he praise the Lord. Um, uh, Psalm, uh, Psalm 34, 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. But here's the promise that uh, we pray God's going to hear us. That's a precious thought, isn't it? That uh, God, when I call upon God, God's promised to hear. And uh, in my troubles, in my difficulty, God's promised to hear. And by the way, the Word of God suggests that He's the only one that can help us. Uh, did you, God, God uh, said there was a curse on a man that leaned on man <laughs> over in Jeremiah. But what a wonderful promise this is. All right now, does everybody have a handout? It says the order of end time events. If you look at that the handout carefully, uh, this is the whole book of the Revelation. In fact, it's the whole book of uh, the whole Bible in one sense at a glance. But this is particularly the outline of the book of the Revelation. And uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. But turn, if you would, to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation 1. And then look at the, the first three verses are uh, an introduction. And let me read these first three verses. This is the introduction now to the book of the Revelation. And uh, watch the language carefully. It's the book of the Revelation. It's not properly called Revelations. All right. It's a, the, the revelation, one revelation. It says the revelation uh, that uh, we sometimes we see that we call the book of the revelation, uh, the apocalypse. Uh, that simply means the unveiling or the revealing. And so uh, God is revealing uh, to us the message that he gave to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then uh, an angel will be the mediary who gives it to John. Uh, the Apostle John, John wrote five books. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He wrote the Revelation, the book of the Revelation. You might know where John was when he wrote the book of the Revelation. He was on the Isle of Patmos. If you had a map in front of you at, the, in the, at that western end of Turkey, uh, shortly off, uh, not far off the coast of modern Turkey in the Aegean Sea is the little Isle of Patmos. And uh, Domitian, the Roman emperor, had exiled him there. And so he was exiled for the testimony of Christ because of his witness, because of his testimony. And it was there that the angel gave him the revelation that God gave to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord, in one sense, gave that to the angel who gave that to John. Now look at the uh, introduction. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. God the <laughs> Father gave the revelation unto Christ. To show unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. So the book of the revelation is about the future. What's going to happen in the future. And he sent and signified it by his angel. The angel now is the mediator. He gave this to Christ unto his servant John. Uh, it's interesting how, uh, interesting how some of the cults use angels to mediate whatever message they believe they get from God. 
Remember the angel Moroni that gave the message to the Mormons? I think there was a message involved in the Seventh-day Adventist cult and so on. <clears throat> but Paul says, if I or an angel from heaven give unto you any other gospel than which I have received, let him be accursed, let him be damned. That's quite a thought, isn't it? When somebody teaches that you're saved through baptism, infant baptism, what does God say ought to happen to somebody that teaches that you're saved by the, the physical act of immersion in water? Let them be damned to hell. That's, the language, that's what the language means. <laughs> let them be anathema. Let them be cursed. Uh, Paul talks about this gospel is precious. Uh, the eternal destiny of men's souls are at stake in the gospel, are they not? This business of teaching any other way of salvation than by faith in Christ alone is uh, dangerous and brings a terrible, terrible judgment of God. It's very, very important that we be clear about what the gospel is. By the way, what, what man does uh, Paul give as the New Testament model of what salvation is? Paul sets forth a man as the model or the example of how you get saved by faith alone. What man is the example or the model of New Testament salvation, according to Paul? It's an Old Testament character, strangely enough. Now, he gives his own testimony but who does Paul set forth as the model, the example of salvation by grace alone through faith alone? He sets forth Abraham, does he not? Was Abraham immersed in water? Abraham never got baptized, did he? Some people say, well, he, uh, the, the, the Church of Christ, the Campbellites, you ever watch Duck Dynasty? I, I love those men. They're good men. They're a lot of fun. And, uh, but uh, they believe that uh, they're Campbellites. They believe you get saved by physical immersion in water. Now, I, I like their politics. I, I enjoy, I, I don't watch them, but uh, I, I like them. But uh, you, you, don't, you don't get saved by getting uh, physically immersed in water. That's a work. Works nullify grace, do they not? All right, but anyhow, let's go on here. Verse two, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed, now that word, the idea there in the Greek uh, is a very emphatic word. To, me, uh, to be blessed is to be envied in your happiness. <laughs> That's what the idea means. To be envied in their happiness. Is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. All right, there's the introduction to the book. All right, the Word of God promises a, a blessing to those that read the book of the Revelation and, of course, do the things they're, they're, they're in. All right, now look at your handout. Let, let, me, let me show you how this is a basically a good outline now of the whole book of the Revelation. I think it's always very helpful if you have sort of an overview of what you're going to be learning. And here's the best overview that you could have. Here's a good overview of the whole book of the Revelation. Now, do you see, uh, come over to the left side. Do you see where it says Calvary, A.D. 33? I believe that that's the best date for the crucifixion of Christ and his resurrection. It was 33 A.D. And some of the students of the Bible, they like 30 A.D. But I think, uh, I think basically 33 is the best date. But anyhow, that's when Christ died, was crucified, was resurrected, A.D. 33. 
Then you see Revelation 1 through 3. Those first three chapters has to do with the church age. Do you remember the Lord tells us about the seven churches of Asia Minor? So uh, one through three has to do with the past. Uh, those seven churches that existed in Asia Minor. Asia Minor now would be, that, would be modern Turkey. Those churches were on that uh, western end of what would be modern day Turkey. All right. <clears throat> then you see the rapture take place. And then you see the, uh, uh, the, uh, the treaty of Israel with the Antichrist. You see that there at the bottom. You see that in Ezekiel 38, 39, and then the, uh, the battle of Gog and Magog, rather, in 38, 39. I, I like to see the battle of Gog and Magog very closely after the signing of the treaty with Antichrist. Now, remember, the treaty with Antichrist begins the uh, tribulation period, not the rapture. Uh, the tribulation begins with the signing of the treaty with Antichrist. And then I think very soon after that, you know, uh, politicians, uh, they lie. They don't always, always do what they say they're going to do. Uh, some of these treaties are not worth the paper that they're written on, right? <laughs> and so I think, uh, I think that uh, the Antichrist is not going to defend Israel. I think there will be a, an invasion of, by Russia and the Islamic nations soon after the signing of the Treaty of Antichrist, over in the very beginning of the tribulation period. All right, Russia and the armies of, the, of Islam will be destroyed in this battle of Gog and Magog. And I think that will clear the Temple Mount for the rebuilding of the temple. I can't imagine Islam allowing the Jews to build the temple on the same place that the Dome of the Rock is located. Did you know the very existence of Israel offends Allah? The mere fact they exist. That's why Islam has promised to drive Israel into the sea, to exterminate Israel. How do you negotiate with people who are, have vowed to destroy you? And uh, this, uh, but anyhow, I, that's just my theory for what it's worth. may not be worth much, but there it is for what it's worth. <laughs> but anyhow, if you look at your hand, then you see the seven-year tribulation, and that's Revelation 6 through 19. So most of the book of the Revelation, chapters 6 through 19, is dealing with this seven-year tribulation period that's divided into two uh, halves, three and a half years each, which you can see here on your handout. So 6 through 19 is the seven-year tribulation period. All right, then you come to Revelation 19. If you look on your handout, first of all, at the very return of Christ, Israel will be saved. Remember at the end of that tribulation, uh, one third of the nation will be spared. Two thirds of Israel will be destroyed during the tribulation. One third of Israel of the Israelites will be spared to the very end of the tribulation. Uh, remember, the world will grow dark. The moon will be darkened, and so on. It's that cause of hair, and so on. And then, what will shatter that darkness? The coming of Christ in the clouds. The whole world will light up. The trumpet will sound. The Lord Jesus Christ will return. With his great armies, he's going to constitute that great army that follows Christ on white horses. Earth, us, the church, yeah. And so, uh, but the return of Christ will light up the world. But then what's going to happen when Israel sees Christ returning? They'll look on him whom they have pierced and they'll all repent. The word of God seems to suggest that every single Jew will repent. I, I don't know. I, I, I think that'd be wonderful. But Israel will look on him whom they have pierced, and they'll all repent. 
Uh, the Lord will destroy the armies of Antichrist and so on. All right, now, Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11, uh, John is going to see the Lord return with those of his saints in white, dressed in white linen on white horses on stallions. Uh, King Jesus will come back to claim his crown rights. And so that's, going to, that's the second coming. And then there'll be the, uh, some judgments, the judgments of the Gentiles, and then the millennial reign will be set up. You look here. Now, we find the millennium, this thousand-year period when Christ reigns on the earth in Revelation chapter 20. So one chapter is given now, or one part of a chapter, actually verses 1 through 10, gives us a description of the millennium. And that word millennium comes from the Latin, means 1,000. Uh, if you read any of these, old, these church history books, they'll talk about uh, these earliest of the church fathers being Kilius. Looks like the word chili. Chilius, Kilius, they pronounce it with a K, as a K, with a K sound. That comes from the Latin, means 1,000. So if you were a Kiliist, <laughs> you believe that the Lord would reign literally on the earth for 1,000 years. So they call it millennialism or Kiliism. But it comes from the word Latin meaning 1,000. All right, so Revelation 20 tells us that there'll be a 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth. You see that? And then at the end of the millennium, there'll be another battle of Gog and Magog. It's what makes it, makes it confusing. Uh, I think at near the beginning of the tribulation period, there'll be a battle of Gog and Magog when Russia uh, will uh, organize and lead the Islamic nations, Iran and I think uh, Libya and so on. Uh, they'll invade Israel in the first part of the tribulation. They call that the battle of Gog and Magog. At the end of the, at the, end of the millennium, uh, by the way, now Satan will be bound during the millennium. He'll be, there'll be a chain. I don't know what kind of a chain it would be to bind Satan, but Satan will be bound for a thousand years at the tribulation period. At the, at the end of the tribulation, Satan will be bound. And for a thousand years, he will not be able to interfere with the people of God, interfere, attempt, and so on. So for a thousand years during the millennium, he's bound up. And that's why uh, Bible Christianity, the uh, word of God, will rule the earth and will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So the millennium will be in one sense a time of great perfection when, uh, when all, all those that enter into the millennium will be saved. But with the passage of time when uh, people marry and have children, not all children will get saved during the millennium. In fact, there's going to be a great many that won't get saved. And so at the end of that time period, Satan is going, at the end of the millennium, if you look here, Satan will be loosed. And he'll be able to interfere once again. And then he's going to organize and rally all these uh, people that were secretly rebelling against God and uh, sinning secretly. Remember, the Lord will rule with a rod of iron during the millennium. So outwardly, everybody will be moral because King Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. But secretly, men will rebel against God and the sin and so on, but they'll keep it secret. They'll keep it private. Just the opposite. Today, uh, godliness is sort of hidden, and this whole world's uh, wickedness is very open, is it not? Well, during the millennium, will be just the opposite. <laughs> in the millennium, uh, holiness and godliness will be external in one sense, and, the, and sinfulness will be sort of hidden and private. All right, so, but then Satan will be loosed, He'll be turned loose. He'll be able to tempt people once again. He'll rally and organize all these rebels, uh, these secret rebels, and he'll try to uh, de declare war against God at the end of the millennium. 
there's no greater fool than an atheist, is there not? No gra- uh, how irrational can you be? It's, nothing is more irrational than to defy God and declare war against God. Well, he's going to be loosed and he's going to rally these people and they're going to organize against God and God, the Lord will destroy them with the breath of his coming. How do we know it's two different battles? The first battle of Gog and Magog during the tribulation, uh, God will destroy that army with earthquakes and hailstones and these armies will turn against each other. And so God will destroy that army uh, with, uh, through physical phenomena, earthquakes and so on. The Lord's going to destroy this battle of Gog and Magog at the end of the millennium just with the breath of his coming. You won't have all these earthquakes and other uh, physical phenomena that will destroy the army. So we know that's why that's two entirely different uh, battles, but with the same name. All right. At the end of the millennium, you see the great white throne judgment. Who will be judged at the great white throne? I remember hearing an old country song and they were talking about what a wonderful day that will be at the great white throne. Is that going to be a wonderful day at at the great white throne? No, that's not going to be a wonderful day. Only the unregenerate will be saved or will be uh, judged at the great white throne. When are Christians going to be judged? Yeah, they'll be judged right, probably shortly after the rapture. And they're going to be judged not for their sin. That was already judged at Calvary, was it not? But they'll be judged for their works. And by the way, Paul says that's going to be a, der- a terrifying day. Did you know that? Paul, uh, and he's talking about the judgment of Christ, of, of believers. He says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Uh, our works are going to be judged, and it's not going to be a pleasant day for many people. But it's not, we won't be judged for our sins. We're not going to, it's not a question of your salvation, but it'll be a question of rewards. But that takes place uh, shortly after the rapture, we think. All right, now look at, again, look at your map. Then after the great white throne, or at the time of the great white throne, uh, the old earth and the heavens will all be burned, will be destroyed. Then there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And we see that in chapter 21 of the Revelation. And you see the lake of fire. Uh, by the way, a fascinating question. Where is that lake of fire going to be in the eternal state? You ever thought about that? There's going to be a lake of fire for all of eternity somewhere. You're going to have a new heaven and a new earth I can't imagine the hell being in, in under the new earth, can you? Maybe so. We don't know. But we know that that lake will exist for all of eternity. And that those who die in their sin unsaved will spend eternity in hell. Well, what a, what a terrible thought that is. It'll be forever. It'll be eternal. All right, then. So 21 and 22 begins what we call the eternal state. And it's fascinating how the Bible tells us almost nothing about the eternal state. We know it'll be perfect. Tells us quite a bit about the millennium. But almost nothing about the eternal state. It'll be a place of absolute perfection, of course. But uh, then you see, if look over on the far right, a new heavens and a new earth. Now, the new Jerusalem will be resting and hovering on the new earth. So there will be a sense in which there will be a heaven on earth. We'll be in heaven on earth. <laughs> Do you see the, char- uh, the, uh, the graph there? You have a new heavens, then the new Jerusalem will come down. I think it will come down after the millennium. Uh, Dwight Pentecost, some of the old uh, dispensational scholars believe that the millennium will come down during the millennium and hover over the earth. 
I don't think so. Uh, I wouldn't break fellowship with you over there if you believe it does. But I believe it will all be new, be a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem, and then all that will take place, I think, after the millennium. And I pictured, as you see here on this graph. All right, but you see how, if you understand, the book of the Revelation is simply a, a, a chronological or sequential history. If you see this, that's exactly what the book is all about. Six through nine, uh, six through 19 is basically most of the book uh, tells us about the tribulation period. In that tribulation period, there are three series of judgments. The uh, series of the, uh, the trumpets, uh, the uh, judgments of the seals, judgments of the trumpets, and judgment of the bowls or vials. And a great debate among prophecy scholars is when do those, those three series of judgments take place? Walbert, John Walbert, thinks all three of them uh, will take place over in the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the last three and a half years. Uh, most Bible scholars seem to think that the seals will take place over in the first half, and then maybe the trumpets uh, will take place in the, and the bowls will be in the second half, second three and a half years. Uh, I tend to think that the seals, as much as I respect John Walbert, I, I probably respect him more than any other prophecy scholar. But uh, that is the one area I would disagree with him on, I think that those, <laughs> that those seals probably take place somewhat over, some, at least part of them take place over in the first three and a half years. But anyhow, does all that make any sense to you? <laughs> all right. But that's an excellent chart. <coughs> but just, you can see how that's a, just an a excellent outline of the chronology of the events in the book of the Revelation. Yes, sir. I, I got you. Some people think that's an intermediate state, that uh, that eventually will be turned into the, uh, the lake of fire is hell, the eternal hell. And many think that the Lazarus, or uh, yeah, the rich man was in a temporary place. They, they called it an intermediate state. Then that will be given up and be turned into, uh, folded over into uh, the lake of fire, eternal hell fire. Now, look up here just a second. We're talking about now how to approach the book of the Revelation, all right? You have two systems of interpretation. This is a profoundly important, maybe the most important issue. When you come to the book of the Revelation, do you read it and understand it like you read anything else? Yes, I think you do. Yeah, God has created the mind to be able to receive truth. And when you come to the book of the Revelation, you read it just like anything else. And you understand it like anything else. Now, is there figurative language, allegorical language? Yes, of course. But, uh, so uh, we believe uh, the conservative view, and most conservatives, uh, we believe in a literal, sometimes they call it normal, you read the book of the Revelation the way you read anything else, in a normal way. Sometimes they call it the plain sense or the normal sense. But it's a, you take it literally. When the, Lord, uh, when the Word of God says that... Uh, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead on the third day. We believe that his physical body came up out of that grave on the third day. You take it, you read it in a normal, plain way. All right? And sometimes it's called the grammatical historical view. I mean, you study the uh, words, the parts of speech. You study the syntax of sentences. Uh, it's always very important to get the historical background. What did that uh, message mean to people in that day when it was written to them and so on? 
And so you're really uh, you're examining the Word of God in a grammatical, historical way, and you're reading the Word of God in a plain, normal way. All right? Then there's others who believe that, you ought to, that the book of the Revelation is a symbolical book. Uh, it doesn't uh, give you, it's not recording literal, uh, uh, literal historical events and places and things like that. It's all symbolical. It's allegorical. Did you ever read Pilgrim's Progress? That's the best example of uh, something allegorical. You always want to look behind the words in the Pilgrim's Progress to find what John Bunyan was getting at, right? You remember he told a Christian uh, when you, uh, when, uh, to get saved, you run towards the wicked gate. You remember that? And uh, he began to run towards the wicked gate and his family was nearby. They began to cry out to him and warn him against going to the wicked gate. A lot of people don't want you to get saved, even your own family. What did Bunyan do when he was running towards that wicked gate? You remember he stuck his fingers in his ears. <laughs> he didn't want to hear those people crying for him not to get saved. What was the wicked gate? See, to understand Pilgrim's Progress, you've got to get below the surface, behind the literal meaning. That's not the primary way the Bible is written. The Bible is written in a literal way. You read it in one sense like you read the sports page. Except, you don't, I hope you don't meditate in the sports page. You meditate in the Word of God. But you read it in a plain, normal way. But the wicked gate was Christ, I believe. Was he not? So you've got to sort of look behind the uh, things that Bunyan wrote to find out what he was. One, uh, one Bible professor that I knew called uh, Pilgrim's Progress the single best one-volume commentary that you can read. But the problem is it's allegorical. Now, you've got to get behind the words and underneath the words to find out what, what uh, Bunyan was getting at. But you don't have to do, uh, make that approach to the book of the Revelation or to the Bible in general, Okay. So uh, you either interpret the Bible in a consistent, the operative word is consistent. You consistently, all through the word of God, including the prophecy part, the, part, uh, the prophetical, the prophecies, you read all those things in a consistently normal way. Uh, we use the grammar and the history and so on. Examine the uh, grammar and the sentences carefully to get, you want to pull the meaning out of it, all right? And so the other way is symbolical or allegorical. Uh, where you, uh, you don't take, uh, the idea is that, uh, that, by the way, in the earliest days of the church, uh, those earliest church fathers all read the Bible in a consistently literal way. It wasn't until about the third century that you get this idea, they call it, uh, actually they mix Greek philosophy with it. In the third century, you begin to get this way of interpreting the word of God. Well, it's kind of strange. I would think those that lived the closest to the Lord and knew Christ the best would interpret the Bible the way he did, wouldn't you? So the earliest church fathers all interpreted the Bible in a consistently literal way. I like to say, let's interpret the Bible the way Jesus did. If you handle the Word of God the way Jesus and Paul did, you're going to be able to handle the Word of God and understand the Word of God, right? Let's just do it like Jesus did. That just keeps it simple, I think. When Christ prophesied something, did it come literally to pass? Or was he always using symbolical language to teach some, uh, some principle, uh, uh, some spiritual principle? When he, when he prophesied, uh, they said that your, your uh, house will be left unto you desolate. Was that temple literally destroyed when Christ prophesied its destruction? Sure. Uh, everything Christ prophesied came to pass literally, didn't it? Well, let's just handle the Bible the way Jesus did. <laughs> That's all. Okay. 
Somebody have a question? Well, he spoke a lot in parables. Yes, but you, but he, uh, the word of God, it was parables. But you, but the context, and sometimes the Lord said it was a parable. Well, what I'm saying about Behind it, yeah. You have to go underneath yes, yeah. He said, for example, the, uh, the, uh, he said, the field is what? In that parable of the sower. Right, but the field is the world. But a parable is a good example of, of, of what we mean symbolic or parabolic or allegorical interpretation. Right. And so, uh, yeah, but, uh, but, you, but the thing is, when, it, when the language is figurative or allegorical or symbolical, the context usually tells you whether or not it's figurative language, doesn't it? Christ interpreted the parable, for example, or the context will give clues as to whether or not something is symbolical or uh, parabolic. All right? And so, yeah, you have uh, four approaches now to the book of the Revelation. The preterist that word simply means past. That some people teach that all the events of the book of the Revelation happened in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed or when uh, the fall of the Roman Empire in 476. Uh, a lot of the high, uh, high Calvinists, hyper-Calvinists, not a lot, but a number of them, teach the preterist view that the book of the Revelation was not really future, didn't give us the future, just simply told us what happened in the past in 70 A.D. or 476 A.D. when Rome fell. They call that the preterist view, the view that everything was completed in the past. Then you have the historicist view, and this uh, teaches the idea, uh, these people believe that uh, the book of the Revelation covers the whole church period. And this, this has about died out now because they know the historical events of the church age uh, were not, uh, were not uh, as uh, these people thought it was going to be. And then you have the idealist, and this is the view that everything in the book of the Revelation is simply spiritual. It's dealing, dealing with spiritual principles. It's not really concerned, it's not predictive, doesn't predict the future. Uh, it doesn't deal with real people and real places and like, like, it's just meant to teach spiritual principles, spiritual lessons. And so this is the view of some people. All right, if you, can, if you interpret the Bible in a consistently literal way, like we've been talking about, uh, we realize that the book of the Revelation is dealing with everything in the future, except for the first three chapters, remember? Chapter 4 and 5, in that context, we get the rapture, which is future. And then 6 through 19 is the tribulation period. 19, the Lord comes back. 20 is the millennium. 21, 22 is the eternal state, and so on. Right, if you handle the Bible the way Jesus and Paul did, <laughs> you're, going to be a, you're going to take the future's view that the book of the Revelation is just like you see outlined there on your hand out there, uh, a series of chronological or sequential events there. All right? Now, this word hermeneutics means the art of scriptural interpretation. So uh, that's, a, that's a good word. Uh, if you go to a Bible college, you may take a class in hermeneutics. It's the art and science of how to interpret the Bible. So when you use words like that, then the word exegesis, that means to read out. This is the proper, this is the way Jesus and Paul handled the scriptures. To, to, we should exegete scripture. We should practice exegesis. That means we read the Bible and pull the meaning out of it. We don't impose our meaning on it. Now, we all, we all have to be careful of that, and we all do that if we're not careful. 
I, I consider myself a dispensationalist. But I try to be aware of the fact that I don't want to impose my dispensationalism on the Bible. But I think it does. If, if you're going to interpret the Bible in a consistently literal way, you're going to be a dispensationalist. You're going to be a pre-tribulationist. You're going to be premillennial. Uh, you're going to hold the view that the, of the revelation as you see on your hand out there. That is a, it's a series of specific people, places, prophecy, events, and so on. Okay? So you have, basically have these four approaches to interpreting the Bible. Preterist, historicist. This has almost died out. Almost nobody believes this anymore, fortunately. Or the idealist view or the futurist view. Okay, all uh, dispensationalists teach uh, uh, a what we call a futures view. All right? Now, you have three millennial views. We believe uh, all the millennium, that, uh, meaning 1,000 years, you have three approaches to this. And it all has to do with when Christ comes back. All right? When, is Christ going to come back before the millennium? Yes, we believe that if you interpret the Bible in a consistently literal way, Christ is going to come back and then he will set up the thousand-year reign of his thousand-year reign on the earth, right? So that's a pre-millennial, pre-meaning before. Christ will come back at the end of the tribulation and then he will set up the millennium. Oh, we call that the premillennial view. And if you're a futurist, that's what you believe, all right? And then you have, uh, this view is held by many, many high Calvinists, hard Calvinists. Amillennial, amillennialism, that Christ will not reign on the earth for a thousand years. And uh, that, that word in Revelation 20, that word thousands used six times. And uh, we believe that Christ will reign on the earth literally for 1,000 years. Uh, King David perhaps will be his co-regent. Uh, but King Jesus will rule on the earth for a thousand years. You and I will reign with him, most likely. Now, some of you might be the, the governor of uh, Florida. I'll probably end up being the dog catcher in Skunk Gut, West Virginia, something like that. <laughs> but I believe that uh, we might reign with the Lord. And the more faithful you are, you, maybe some of you might be the president of the United States. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> but the word of God says that during the millennium, we'll, we'll, we'll be reigning with him. All right. But uh, these people don't believe that there will be a literal reign of Christ on the earth. They spiritualize Revelation 20, or they allegorize it, and they say it doesn't really mean a thousand years. That's just sort of a, a symbolical number that means a long time. Well, the Lord used it a thousand times. It seems to me like he, was, he meant it literally, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't it to you? <clears throat> and then post-millennial believes that we as Christians will Christianize society. We'll have our Christian schools and our churches. We'll take over. We'll go out to Hollywood and make some wonderful movies, and they'll all be Christian movies. We'll put Steven Spielberg and those people out of business. We'll make some wonderful movies, and they'll all be Christian. We'll take over the news media. We'll tell uh, David Murr and uh, Noel uh, McDonald, you people need to clear your desks out now. We're going to have somebody come here and tell the truth for a while. You're fired. And we're going to take over all the... We're going to Christianize society. We'll take over the media. We'll take over Hollywood. Uh, we'll take over the sports uh, realm. And uh, we won't have any more uh, Black Lives Matters and people taking a knee uh, during the sports events. Uh, we'll all uh, pray and pledge, pledge allegiance to the flag. And it'll be a wonderful spiritual experience. And uh, so we're just going to Christianize society. What's the like? Does that seem to be working? 
<laughs> Doesn't seem to be working, does it? <laughs> no. But anyhow, that's the post-millennial position. Uh, this, this, died, this was very popular in the 19th century, but it died out, and now it's been revived in recent years. They love the, a lot of Calvinists, uh, what they call Reconstructionists, and they believe that we ought to build society on the, old, on the Bible, on the Mosaic Law, bring everybody back under that Mosaic Law again. Now, you don't really want to be under that Mosaic Law, <laughs> do you? But anyhow, okay, those are, that's kind of a good overview. Now we're, I hope, hope we're ready to study the, the book of the Revelation, okay? Our Father God, we're thankful for this day and for your love and your wonderful truth and uh, the wonderful promise of a blessing. Bless us, Father, as we look into this book. Uh, bless the preaching hour. Uh, we pray that thy spirit might move on hearts, and even this day you might uh, save that soul that's near as hell. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.